My name is Jim. Great to be with you guys today. If you're joining online or at one of our locations, we're glad you're with us because we've been on a journey looking at the human side of Jesus, that he gets us. Like whatever human emotions or human heartache you could ever experience, Jesus has like been there, felt that. He knows what real life and the real world is like. He gets us. Well, today we're going to talk about how Jesus celebrated the value of women. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be in the New Testament. We're going to be in the Gospels, and we're going to go to a few different passages. So we'll begin in John 4. If you don't have a Bible, I just want to encourage you, go to BibleGateway.com on your mobile device. And at the search bar at top, just type in John 4, and the whole chapter will pop up. And later on, when we go to some other passages in the Gospel, do the same thing. And you'll be able to move along with us as we go through the message. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the TV show, Antique Roadshow. You ever seen that show? That's a fascinating show. I, I, it's a show where like, like people, local people bring in antiques and they bring them to experts who would assess their value and appraise the value of these antiques. Rose and I will watch that show from time to time. And one of the things I find so interesting about it is once we start watching it, we start to bicker with each other about how we would value this particular item or that particular. It's like 10 minutes into the show, we somehow turn into like professional appraisers of value. I don't know if you have that in your home, but we certainly do. Well, many years ago, uh, a man from Corpus Christi, Texas, a man named, uh, his name was Rue Ferguson, he brought in a painting. And the painting was inherited from his recently deceased mom. Now, this is a painting that had been in the family for decades. So, so Rue Ferguson had seen this painting day in, day out, countless times. The painting is uh, a 1904 Diego Rivera painting titled El Abanil, like the, the laborer. He brought this painting in, and the art expert, Colleen Fesco, she authenticated the painting. She's like, yep, that's a 1904 Diego Rivera. But then she also appraised it and the value that she assigned to this painting was somewhere between, she said, 800000 and $1.2 million. It, to this day, it's still one of the highest, highest valued items ever brought in. Well, Rue Ferguson, his response, first response was, seriously? <laughs> his, first response. his second response was, ha, ha, ha. And his third response was, I had no idea. Now, can you imagine day by day being exposed to a, a valuable masterpiece of incredible value, day by day by day, and you didn't even know its value, you had no idea of its value until an expert actually pointed it out to you? Here's a question. How would you assess the value of a woman? In our culture, often our culture might assess the value of, woman, of a woman in terms of like beauty or maybe or, or body type. Our culture sometimes assesses the value of a woman in terms of educational attainment or maybe professional achievement. In our culture, oftentimes women are valued in terms of marital status or even maternal status. Now, here's a little newsflash. Though every mom is a woman, not every woman is a mom, though every woman had a mom at some point in time. Well, today, we are going to learn from the world's foremost expert in women. Not me. <laughs> Guarantee you that. Rose will tell you. 
we're going to learn from Jesus Christ. Now listen, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must value what he values the way he values it. So as we go through the Gospels, here's the big idea we're going to see playing out all through the Gospels. Here it is. Jesus showed the world how God values women. He showed the world how God values women. Now, the reality is sometimes what's valuable can be treated in a really cheap way. Back in the days of Jesus, during his uh, culture, women were not treated with the same value as men. Does that sound familiar to anyone? The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? And back in Jesus' day, there was a prayer that rabbis would teach to males. Males would pray this prayer every day. And the prayer had multiple lines in it. One of the lines of this prayer goes like this. God, I thank you that you did not create me a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, a slave or a woman. Can you imagine devout men praying a prayer like that every day? Well, then there's Jesus. And his attitude, his treatment toward women was revolutionary. The countercultural way that Jesus valued women just pushed back against the cultural pressure of those days and even of these days. And because we are Bible people, our, our hope, our beliefs rest on the authority of the Word of God. It's important for us just to get a few facts on the table today. Here's the first fact. According to historians, the four gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, contain more references to women than any document in the first century. So often women are underrepresented, but in the gospels themselves, in the first century, there is no document with more representation of women than the gospels themselves. Six me a fact number two. Jesus consistently wove women into the themes of his preaching. Just think about it. One time Jesus told a story in Luke 15 about a woman who lost a coin, swept her whole house to find it. Another time in, in Matthew 13, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a woman who took yeast and put it into dough and baked some bread. Another time, Matthew 25, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like 10 virgins who go out looking for the bridegroom. So Jesus constantly wove women in his preaching. And honestly, I've been praying for us. One of my prayers is that every time we open the Bible from here on out, we would see this and be like, huh, wow. So that takes me to the third fact. The third fact that Jesus often highlighted women as great examples. Here's one. Jesus highlighted the Canaanite woman as a great example of faith. Matthew 15, 28. He said, I haven't even seen such faith in all of Israel. Imagine that. Talked about a Gentile woman. Jesus highlighted a woman one time as an example of generosity. Remember the poor widow who put in her two coins in the offering at the temple in Mark chapter 12, verse 43? Jesus, like, she put in more than everybody did. This is a woman. Also, one time Jesus highlighted a woman as an example of tremendous devotion. Think of Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus before he went to the cross. In fact, Matthew 26, 13, Jesus said, wherever this gospel is told, what she has done will be remembered. These are women. We could, I could go on and on and on. The, the New Testament, the Bible is so full of this. So here's a question. How is it then that our culture views Christianity and the Bible as anti-women? How could this be? Well, could it be that maybe maybe we are not valuing women 
the same way Jesus valued women. Maybe in our practice as Christ followers, something's missing. Bible teacher Beth Moore got in a little bit of a tussle over some legitimate sexism directed her way years ago, and she got into a a little bit of a social media interaction with another Christian scholar, and she wrote these words. She said, we must search the attitudes and practices of Christ Jesus himself toward women. He is our Lord. He had women followers, evangelists. The point of all sanctification and obedience is toward being conformed to his image. What a great piece of advice. In fact, let's do this very thing today. Let's search the attitudes and practices of Christ Jesus himself toward women with the goal of being conformed to his image. That's exactly what we're doing today. So as we turn to John chapter 4, here's the first thing that we are going to see. We're going to see that Jesus valued women as persons. As opposed to what? Objects? John chapter 4. Now I'm going to set a little context here you're going to need because all of the passages today have this context in the back. In the first century Roman world, from Rome to Persia, from Mesopotamia to Egypt, women were considered property. Valuable property, but property nonetheless. And both the Old and the New Testament describe women being treated as such. Now, though women in Scripture were described as being treated like property, that does not mean that God endorsed such treatment. In other words, just because something's found in the Bible doesn't mean God endorses that thing as his design. For example, we see in the Bible child sacrifice. God does not endorse it. In fact, he condemns it. So it's not condoned because we see it there. It's actually condemned. Same would be said of polygamy. We see it practiced in the Bible, but God did not endorse it. In fact, he actually condemns it. That's what the word adultery relates to. And well, the same thing would hold true when it comes to women as property. Though something is in the Bible, doesn't mean that God condones it. Here's a little tidbit. You know the voice of the devil's in the Bible too, right? Read the book of Job. The devil speaks there. So just because something's there doesn't mean God's design is being represented. In fact, God often condemns and not condones some of the things that we're seeing there. So in the ancient Near East, our modern idea that every human being has equal value, that idea would not be self-evident. In fact, it would probably seem to be ridiculous. The origins of the idea that every human being has equal value, it does not lie in the Declaration of Independence doesn't come from the Bill of Rights. It doesn't rest on any human-centered ideology of social justice. The idea that every human being has equal value comes from the Bible. Genesis 1.27, God made him in the image of God, male and female, made he them in the image of God. So when we look at Jesus, we see Jesus treating human beings, men and women, as God intended, equally valuable. His attitudes, his practices, how he valued women is how we should. So in John chapter 4, Jesus is moving from the southern part of the country to the northern part of the country, and he passes through an area called Samaria. Typically, Jews would avoid that area because Jews and Samaritans did not associate. Samaritans were viewed as half-breeds. They were half-Gentile, half-Jew, and they had a mixed religion too. But Jesus intentionally chooses to go. And in John 4, it's noon, it's the hottest part of the day, Jesus is weary from his journey. So he goes to a famous well, and he sits down. 
This is a public well. And when he sits down, a Samaritan woman walks up to him. Let's pick it up, John chapter 4. Look at verses 7 through 10. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So here we go. Boys and girls, let me ask you. Who spoke first? Look at the text. Who spoke first? Was it this Samaritan woman? Did she speak first? No, in the text, Jesus spoke first. Uh-oh, no bueno. In fact, this encounter is problematic on several levels. It's problematic ethnically. Jesus is Jewish. She is Samaritan. You saw it in the text. They do not associate. They have a long history. They don't associate. It's also problematic culturally. He's a man. She's a woman. In the first century, men were not allowed to speak to women in public, period. You don't do that. In fact, there are parts of the world to this very day. You can't just walk up to a woman and talk to her as a male in public. Can't do it. So it's also problematic religiously. She's half like understanding the Jewish faith. And Jesus brings up the topic of God with her. And he very interestingly introduces her to the idea of living water. But there's another level that this is problematic. It's problematic morally. If you're looking at the chapter, look at verses 16 through 18. As soon as she indicates that she's interested in this living water, Jesus says, great, go call your husband. The word husband occurs five times in the text. She replies, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Uh-oh. No bueno. In the ancient Near East, only the husband could initiate a divorce. So a woman could not initiate a divorce. And for a husband to initiate a divorce, he had to go to the local authorities and bring the wife. He had to publicly state her uncleanness or her unfitness to be a wife. So this woman was publicly rejected by a husband five different times. And the one she's with now, the partner that she's with, is probably just a financial arrangement so she would not have to beg to make a living or something worse. So she replies to Jesus. Look at verse 25. She replies, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Yeah. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Draw attention to this word Messiah. It occurs two times in verse 25. She says that I know that when Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. And then in verse 29, she tells the townspeople, come see a man 
Could this be the Messiah? She's using religious language to describe a biblical concept. The biblical concept Messiah goes all the way back to its origin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. At the scene of the fall of humanity into sin, God promised in that moment there will come a day he will send one, a promised one, who will heal the damage of sin, evil, and death and restore the rule of God over the lives of people one heart at a time. And in verse 26, Jesus said, I am he. Here's a little fun fact. This is the first time Jesus ever identified himself as the Messiah. Fun fact number two, he did it to a woman. Not just any woman, but a marginalized woman, a Samaritan woman. So friends, if you're looking for someone who knows your true worth, Jesus says, I am he. If you're looking for the source of real life and true love and relationship, Jesus said, I am he. If you're looking for someone who can get you past your past and and help you become the person that God intended for you to, to become, Jesus said, I am he. So ladies and gentlemen, in this encounter, we see that a woman's value does not come from her role. It doesn't come from her past. It doesn't come from her appearance. It doesn't come from her status, marital, maternal, or otherwise. A woman's value comes from God himself. Christian scholar Latha Scanzoni in the 70s wrote a groundbreaking book, and in the book she wrote these words. She said, Jesus came to earth not primarily as a male, but as a person. He treated women not primarily as females, but as human beings. Jesus didn't relate with women according to the cultural standards of how to relate with women. He related with women based on God's value of them. And in this encounter in John 4, what do we see? We see Jesus speak publicly with a woman in a time you're not supposed to do that. We see Jesus crossing so many barriers and boundaries to get to her. And we see Jesus identifying himself as the Messiah. And in doing so, all the while, he had a difficult conversation about her own sinful past in a way that gave her dignity and honored her as a person, but still pointed out her need for forgiveness through the Messiah. The result of the passage, Jesus empowered her to go to share the good news. And she did. She went back to town and told everyone. They came, and they spent time with Jesus, and the whole town found faith in Christ. So this Samaritan woman is the first non-Jewish evangelist in all of Scripture. So Jesus valued women, first of all, as persons. Second of all, Jesus valued women as disciples. We're going to see that in two passages. So if you've got Bible Gateway open or your Bible, just flip on over, go to Luke chapter 8. Jesus valued women as disciples. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard this saying? A woman's place. Is in the kitchen. Anyone? You ever heard that? You ever heard that before? Isn't that a horrible, demeaning thing to say? It is. But back in Jesus' day, every woman would know exactly how to fill in that blank. In Jesus' day, a woman would fill in the blank. A woman's place is not in the temple area because you're confined to the outer ring called the court of the women. Here's a little fun fact for you. Did you know when God gave the design of the temple, 
The court of the women was not a thing. In Solomon's temple, the court of the women was not a thing. But when we get to Herod's temple, now the court of the women's in the, who made it a thing? Gee, I wonder, who made it a thing? In Jesus' day, women would be able to fill in the blank. A woman's place is separated from the men in the synagogue because in the synagogue, where the scriptures were studied, they were separated. Even if you were married, you didn't sit with your husband, you had to sit with the women. In fact, did you know that when the attendance was taken in a synagogue, females do not get counted, only the males. So in Jesus' day, a woman would be able to fill in the blank. A woman's place is not with the scriptures in their hand. Women were not permitted to receive formal instruction in the scriptures. If you were to receive instruction, it would be from your husband at home or a family member like your father. To encapsulate the attitude toward women, I want to show you a horrible, awful, no good quote from Rabbi Eliezer in the first century that said, rather should the word of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. That's what you do with that. That was the prevailing attitude. Now, on the other hand, Jesus had a way of putting a woman in her place. He put him in the place of value. He put him in the place of being included. He put him in the place of relationship and discipleship. He put him in the place, get this, of ministry partnership. Luke chapter 8, let's look at verses 1 through 3. It says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news and the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who he had cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I want to draw attention to that word travel, traveled. Travel. It's not hard to imagine Jesus traveling from town to town, one village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's not hard to imagine him. In fact, how would you imagine him? I would imagine him just with a band of dudes. It's like the boys' club, almost like the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. That's how I imagine it. One town to the next. But that's not what Scripture describes to us. Did you notice that Jesus, it says, traveled with the 12, verse 2, and some women? Three are named, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. So Jesus had a traveling co-ed ministry team of males and females who went from one town and village to the next, day by day and night by night. And that would be scandalous in almost any era. People would be like, what's that group doing? I think it's interesting if you noticed in the text that Jesus allowed women to bankroll the ministry. Did you notice that? That these women that are named are women of means and they help support out of their means. Again, I also think it's kind of interesting that it was the women who made sure that the bills got paid. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Because in many of our homes, if the... If, Women don't remember to do that. Guys are going to remember. We're over there doing something else. So 
This is also interesting, too, to note, and I want to pin this in, in your mind. These women here in, in Luke 8, 1 through 3, are referred to as the women of Galilee. These women were with Jesus in his teaching, his miracles, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. Pin that in your mind. Just pin. They were not just disciples. They were faithful disciples. And so Jesus would fill in the blank. A woman's place is in a circle of my disciples, studying the word, learning and growing with all the rest. Jesus would fill in the blank. A woman's place is shoulder to shoulder, working, using whatever gifts God has given to make a kingdom impact. So if a woman hungers to learn, if a woman hungers to have an influence that lasts forever, to advance the kingdom by using their gifts, Jesus not only gets you, he has a place for you. And that place is the place of being a disciple. We see that in Luke chapter 8, but we also see it in Luke chapter 10. So go ahead and flip over to Luke chapter 10 or Bible Gateway, Luke 10, in the, in the search section there, right at the last part of the chapter, Luke chapter 10, beginning in 38. And Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, by the way, just so we can... Get that clear. She had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Few things are needed, or Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not, listen, it will not be taken away from her. Now, not all of Jesus' close friends were part of his traveling team. Here we see a family, Mary and Martha. There's actually a brother, so it's a close family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, a town just outside of Jerusalem. And whenever Jesus would visit the city, we see it in the Gospels, he spent a lot of time with them. He would stay with them as he would be in the city. Now remember, a woman's place is in the kitchen in those days. So Martha is assuming the traditionally female role of preparing food in the kitchen. Question, where's Mary? See it in the text? Like, where's Mary? Well, verse 39 tells us she's not in the kitchen preparing food. She's in the other room. And the text tells us she's sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to him. She is occupying a place that is traditionally reserved for males only. And it's a place of formal discipleship being taught by a rabbi. How do we know this? Acts chapter 22, verse 3, the apostle Paul said, I grew up in this city and I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He's using formal language of a discipling relationship from a disciple to a rabbi formally. And this is exactly what Mary is doing. Mary is seated in the room that's only allowed for males in the position of a disciple before Jesus the rabbi while Martha's in the back room. And so here's what you need to know. In the first century, rabbis did not take Female disciples. They did not do that. It was not done. 
And so Martha, she gets this, and she comes in, and she wants Jesus to correct Mary to fix this, get her back in here. And not only does Jesus not correct Mary, he affirms Mary, and he celebrates Mary. Women should be learning. Women should be growing and becoming. Now, in our day, I don't know if you know this, but in our day, women earn 60% of all college degrees awarded in the United States. 60%. In fact, did you know historically, the highest two IQ tests ever recorded, one and two, in human history, were females. So in our day, we get like women have gifts, they're sharp, they're whatever. But in their day, oh, no, no, no. That's not how it works. But on that night, Jesus celebrated Mary as a disciple. And it was a watershed moment. This should not be taken away from her. And Jesus' behavior transforms the experience of women rippling out from that point. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, Jesus gave women human dignity. Prior to Jesus, women were regarded as inferior beings, religiously speaking. Couldn't hold the Bible, couldn't touch it, couldn't teach it. So listen, Jesus not only knows, he not only gets that women have gifts, Women should have their gifts unlocked, just like everybody else, in the context of a discipleship relationship to Jesus as their master in the community of other disciples. And so, Jesus understood. Jesus valued women. He always treated them with, as equals. He always empowered them to do great things, and he never put them down. He never made them feel inferior. Friends, Jesus showed the world how God values women. Jesus valued women as persons. Number two, Jesus valued women as disciples. And very quickly, we're going to see that Jesus valued women as witnesses. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. So again, jump on over to Matthew 28. I'll pick you up in just a moment. Here's a question. If you were able to create a brand new superhero right now, what sex would you give your superhero? Is it even a better question? What, like, if you were to look at all, like, 51% of the American population, just about 51 tips a little toward female, is female, just a little bit more than, than the majority, slightly. Question, what percentage do you think, of all the superheroes that exist, DC and Marvel, what percentage do you think are female? I don't know, take a guess. Just turn to your neighbor and go, I don't know, uh, take a guess real quick. Well, luckily, we actually have a study. In 2017, a woman named Amanda Shendrick, she studied all the DC and Marvel superheroes. So the first thing that blew my mind, here's the first thing, there are 34,476 superheroes. That's a lot, DC and, and 34,476. Of those superheroes in those comic books, which percentage, what's the percentage that are female? 26.7%, which means 73.3% are male. And then she got into the traits. Like, what are the traits of these superheroes? It's interesting. The number one superpower for male superheroes is strength. Okay, because they're like, you know. The number one superpower for, for the women, female superheroes, agility. Okay, all right. I just have a question. Here's a question. 
Why are most of our superheroes male? 51% of the population is female. Why are so many of the superheroes male? Well, it's because junior high boys are right now. Well, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> Truth be told, friends, in the Gospels, the portrait of strength is actually the portrait of the females. It's actually the portrait of the females. At Jesus' arrest, the 12 apostles minus one, the verb used to describe what they did is fled. I'm not knocking these guys. They came around later, which is what guys typically do. We'll get there. We'll come around later at some point. And when we do, typically, the women's already there going, where have you been? Been waiting here all this time. Where have you been? The women of Galilee that we, that we met in Luke 8, listen, they never fled. They never fled. They stayed close. They were there during his teaching, during the crucifixion, during the burial, and for the resurrection appearances. The Gospels record that these women were the major witnesses of Jesus' ministry, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. We're in Matthew 28. If you look at those first four verses, you will see that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, not Jesus' mom, but the other Mary from Galilee, they go to Jesus' tomb and they find that the stone is already rolled away. And then verses 5 through 7, an angel announces to them, for the first time any human being ever hears the three world-changing words, he is risen. First time ever from an angel to women, Mary Magdalene particularly. Then, after seeing inside the empty tomb, which, by the way, the first human beings to ever lay eyes in the empty tomb were women. And then the angel tells them to go, to tell the disciples to go to Galilee where they will see Jesus. Let's pick that up. Matthew 28, verses 8 through 10. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came up to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. I want to draw attention in verse 9 to those three words. Jesus met them. Who's the them? The them is Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They were the first human beings to be given the privilege of being the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh-oh, no bueno. Because in the first century, a woman's testimony did not have legal weight. The only way a woman's testimony would have any legal weight is if it was verified by a male. Typically their husband, if not, then the father could be a brother. But a woman's testimony said no weight on its face. So against all cultural conventions, Jesus chose Mary Magdalene to be the first person to see the risen Christ, to speak with the risen Christ, the first person to go and tell the apostles those three world-changing words, he is risen. And so for this reason, all through church history, several different streams of Christianity have assigned to Mary Magdalene, who, by the way, was never a prostitute. Please, let's correct that. 
they've assigned to her the title, the apostle to the apostles. She was the first one to see the resurrected Jesus, the first one to go and be told, go and tell, and she went and told the apostles, who were themselves witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, who went and told the world. John Ortberg summarized this so well in an amazing book he wrote called Who Is This Man? And I want to recommend this book to you as a really good companion for the series that we've been in. It's a phenomenal book, Who Is This Man? Ortberg summarized it by saying, in all four Gospels, the task of being witnesses who proclaim the resurrection is given to women. This is remarkable because in the ancient world, a woman's testimony was generally disregarded. Friends, it's the testimony of Scripture that bears the weight. And the testimony of Scripture is this, my friends. No woman disciple ever abandoned Jesus. No woman disciple ever betrayed Jesus. No woman disciple ever failed to believe his word. So for this reason, we see in Jesus' behavior, we see Jesus treat the women as co-heroes. The men came around and did amazing things, as we all know, and history has those stories. But we need the stories of the women as the co-heroes in the great big story of God because Jesus showed us, he's our Lord, how God values women. So ladies, if you would just permit me, just, just a word, just a word, please. In the eyes of Jesus, you have more value than you will ever know. Your body shape, your appearance, your accomplishments, your status, that's not your value. Your value is an image bearer. In the eyes of Jesus, you have amazing gifts that, that, that are to be unlocked and unleashed, and that will only happen as a full-time follower, disciple of Jesus, in the context of other full-time disciples of Jesus. And you have a voice. And God wants to amplify your voice to bear witness to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, permit me a word. As followers of Jesus, we have to value what Jesus values the way he values it. Gentlemen, we have to value women as Jesus values women. So I'm asking you today, will you join me in making a commitment to treat women not as objects, and you know what I mean. Treat them more like persons with the same value you have. To treat them less like inferiors and more like co-equal. And would you treat them less like secondary role and more like a co-hero of what God is doing in this world through Christ and through his followers. So Jesus gets us. But gentlemen, I'm asking you, do you get him? Because one of the ways we show we get him is by doing what he did, valuing what he values. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize today what an incredible honor it is to be made in your image. And we are grateful that you made us in your image, not some of us, not half of us, all of us in your image with equal value, equal worth, equal dignity. And truth be told, God, we confess we haven't always valued others. We haven't always valued ourselves. We haven't always valued women as image-bearing 
value-having people. Thank you, Father, for sending your son Jesus into the world, the Lamb of God who took away our sins at the cross, who rose from the grave and now empowers all through his spirit to live the way of Jesus, not on our own, not by our strength, not by willpower, but by discipleship to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us today to live as disciples, to value what you value, to love as you love, and to be witnesses together of the resurrection, life-changing power of Jesus the Messiah, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen.